Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 82, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. As a 16-year-old about to graduate from high school and Harvard, the ACLU contends that an Arizona school is forcing some students to wear a scarlet badge of shame. Plus, got water? These Wisconsin schools do. We'll explain. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, Project Lit, how a class project to stop book deserts turned into a nationwide movement. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire Lissa Pruitt and education data expert Russ Davis of School Status. Lissa, how you doing? I'm great. Russ, how's it going over there? It's going really well. Just trying to get the year started. You know, I forgot to tell you, Russ, we, um, when you were out at the end of last year, we were able to catch up with um, Nick Peterman. I forget his exact title, Senior Vice President of School Status or something along those lines. And um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it yet, but um, really great interview. And it's just about all the work you guys have been doing with the um, the translation of conversations and just the conversations taking place between parents and uh, teachers. Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's really exciting, man. I mean, like there's in your career, I think you only get an opportunity to do a couple of things that are truly transformative. And over the past two years, working with working with schools and seeing people communicate, um, I believe it's transformative work. And so we are just leaning right into that. Lisa, you talk to uh, parents using school status, right? Yes, I do. Um, like, I think in my school, I'm like one of the top communicators Are but you? I teach every <laughs> Russ can, Russ can double we, check we may this. have to send you a t-shirt um, yeah. check it okay All check right. it Russ because right. I think I win but I do teach every child in the school so whereas right. some teachers just you know have their little bowl of children right. I teach you have a, a gigantic <laughs> serving dish yes but yeah. I I mean I really do make it a goal and our school makes it a goal to try to make positive contact as much as possible especially right. at the beginning of the year um, I love the app, I love the text right. app. Um, it's just, and I, lo- I I will say this from someone that teaches 700 children, I love that it has a little picture of the student because at the beginning of the year, <laughs> right. that can be really hard because you have a student, a, a parent reply back like, oh, thank you so much for your right. kind words. Sometimes they have different like, last names. Right, and yeah. so it's like it'll it'll get you a little bit to where right. you're like, no, wait a minute, now let me visualize this child, but but you can. With right. the with the app, and I love that. That's pretty slick. I've gotten messages from teachers with it, and um, like you said, you said the positive mm-hmm. stuff. I've, I've fortunately haven't gotten the negative one yet, but if I did, I've already had some positive conversations, so it's right. not going to catch me off guard. You know what I mean? It's that mm-hmm. it's important for teachers to have that positive conversation. They just they make it easy, and so. that goes back to the administrator. I do think you you know some of the best administrators they required. It's not easy, but they do check it and they. They acknowledge it in staff meetings of like, hey, just want to give a shout out to this teacher. She uh, actually it, sent huh? this many oh, positive. Yeah. Like, and that goes back to the administrator because they they want a positive atmosphere in their school, and it starts with teachers being positive towards 
the children through the parent. If anybody is totally lost at what we're talking about, <laughs> episode 80, you, you can check it out. Um, all right, let's, let's go ahead and jump into the teacher's lounge. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so yeah. there's a 16-year-old from Kansas that's graduating high school early. That's that's shocking, right? Right. That's, that's, it Whoa. happens. But it happens, yeah. but yeah, wow, 16-year-old yeah. graduating high school. Okay, go ahead. But what if I told you that, nope, he's, he's graduating high school at the age of 16, but then two weeks later, he's going to graduate from Harvard. This blows my mind. It's, it's, it's a thing. It's yeah. a real so, thing. My, 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 here's my gut reaction right now. I'm really happy for him. Yeah. I'm sure he deserves it. But did he really go to Harvard? You know, like, did you really go to Harvard? Well, I'll, I'll, I can answer yeah. some of that. Okay. I'm, okay. Yeah. I'm going to step up for him. So, okay, first of all, his name is Braxton, and I hope I'm saying it right. You know, I'm, sometimes last names are hard, but Braxton Morale. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, or moral. Right. Anyway, he attends Ulysses High School in Kansas. Um, and, you know, his parents say that he was, you know, gifted from a young age. Like, you know, that people were always like, whoa, at the age of three, the things he could do. Um, they, of course, involved him in as many extracurricular gifted programs and things as possible just to keep him, you know, interested and ignited. Um, at age 11, he participated in the Duke tip talent search, you know, which I don't know if you're aware of that, but okay. Well, so in middle school, usually if you sit for, uh, the SAT, Duke will, um, across the nation kind of plucks children that have like that rate, you know, extremely high on those tests. And this is before they really have had the opportunity for advanced classes like, you know, Carnegie unit classes. And so then they can participate in summer programs across the nation that host these um, deeper dives into things. And so he, he was involved with that. Um, But I mean, even when they, they took their son to have him, kind of evaluated, you mm-hmm. know, they made a joke that the the college thought that the machine was broken because basically he rated, well, you know, like at a collegiate level and so right. many things. And he's, you know, we have talked about this before with gifted students. I have my master's in gifted education. Sometimes they sense a bit of depression or they feel different than others because they are, you know, different than everyone else. And they think on such a higher level that they start to ponder those questions that almost have no answer. Like, what is, what is this all for? What does this all mean? Why right. am I here? You know, um, what is my purpose? And that, you know, that's for a child to ask those questions at such a young age and have such a high IQ and such understanding of things. It's just hard to right. answer. Yeah. So, yeah. um, his parents started to get him involved in as many things as possible just to keep his mind interested and to, you yeah. know, help it not It's like the opposite stall. of ignorance is bliss. There's, there is sure. no ignorance. Absolutely. So anyway, so he does attend Harvard in the summers. So he does attend the campus and he loves being on that campus. But so he's he, like physically there? In the summer. Okay. Um, and in the school year, he um, takes his regular high school courses and then he also is involved in the Harvard, I believe, I believe they call it like the outreach or the extension, I think Harvard's extension program, but it's basically Harvard courses that are for, really it's geared for people that are older in life that, mm-hmm. you know, want to go and get a degree of some sort. Um, yeah, MBA or something like something that. Something yeah. like that, right. So he is involved in those courses. So he does do a lot online, but in the summer he attends 
So that's good. Real. I was concerned that he wasn't actually getting <laughs> the college experience. No, and he know? says he loves that. He d- he says he loves being on campus. He loves feeling a part of the history and a part of the thread of the actual university. But right. um, but he did do a lot of coursework online, um, and he's been doing it for a while. So that's why he is now able to graduate. He is graduating with a liberal arts degree, um, which I know sometimes. No, no, we're all for it. We had an episode on the liberal arts. <laughs> uh, Russ, what, what, Russ? I, um, I'm, I'm silent. I'm, I I'm sure his liberal great. arts degree is yes, the best. but he he atten- he plans to get a law degree. That is his. That's where he wants to go. So he'll have that by seventeen, I guess. Eighteen, <laughs> you know. I don't know. I mean, and you know, sometimes. Like, I know students that I taught, you know, this makes me feel old, but, you know, I taught them when they were, like, in second grade, and then they ended up, I heard that they graduated high school earlier. I taught them in fifth grade, and I heard that they decided to graduate as a junior instead of a senior, and they were already at, you know, a college campus. I think there's pros and cons to that. I think, especially when you're living on campus, you know, you you are younger. You do appear more immature or whatever. Um, I have, a, you know, two boys. One of them I held back a year because he just by birth year and everything, he just seemed younger than everybody else. And he fits 100%. I mean, it's the best thing we ever did, but I have another son, my younger child that is completely the youngest in his grade for sure. Um, but he seems like the oldest and Mm -hmm. he seems not just the oldest in that grade, but he seems like two grades ahead, like in maturity and everything. So I think it just depends on the child. And obviously he's, Seems to have a great sense of humor. You know, when he was interviewed, he said, it's not that hard. It's just, you know, time management. You know, he kind of yeah, winks, you know, because he knows that, like, yeah. it is hard. But he does. He says he does downplay it a little bit around his high school peers. Like, he doesn't talk about it much yeah. because he doesn't want to be... That guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Russ, is it... Can you do this too fast? Is Or do you... Is it right to just challenge somebody with this natural ability? I mean... First of all, can we just talk about how smart this person is? Like, I think I'm a pretty smart guy walking around, and then I hear about this kid, and I just feel very, very dumb. Um, But I don't know if it's the wrong or right thing. I mean, I think that there are some developmental things that have to happen for someone. Um, I think there are some milestones, and I think being with your peers is, is sometimes important. But I think if somebody has this vast intelligence, if it were my child, you know, I would just say, how can you handicap them? and keep them back whenever they want to run with it, you know? Well, Um, and when they also feel set apart, like you want to find ways to plug them in. And kudos to these parents for doing that because clearly that's what they've done. They've found ways to keep him happy and, you know, excited about learning, mm -hmm. you know, because there's a ton of gifted students, highly intelligent students that even drop out of high school because they think the people, the kids that they go to school with are, you know, immature and stupid and superficial and they're not intrigued by their courses. I'm intrigued in like his day-to-day life. Yeah. Like, I feel like you could make a reality show around a kid like this. Like, it's probably the last thing he needs, but, you know, I mean, like, what, what's it like? Like, I mean, what's it like accelerating through high school, accelerating through college, um, being the smart, like hearing people talk and knowing they're wrong all the time. Like you're basically like, you're basically like Watson, um, the (laughs) IBM computer, you know, like what's, what's that world like? Yeah. I mean, hopefully he's learned a lot of social skills along the way to realize that he doesn't have to tell them they're wrong every time they're talking about something. But, I mean, from what I have dug into it, the 
teachers all love him. He's he's well loved. He's he's got a healthy balance, but he his jam is learning new things. Like and that's what he's done. Well, good for him. Uh, Russ, let's go ahead and uh, jump over to you. What do you know this week? Well, there is a uh, there's a school district that is in a bit of hot water. It's the Mingus Union High School in Cottonwood, Arizona. So they issue. Now, I want to start with the premise that I think that this is well intentioned. So they issue different colored badges to students based upon what grade they're in. So like under underclassmen, like uh, ninth and tenth grade students get a red badge and then students who are in the 11th and 12th grade get a gray badge, right? And the school district says this is so that um, 11th and 12th graders can leave campus during the day to go get lunch and things like that. And it, you know, it's for security reasons. And also in the event of some sort of disaster, they could definitely tell what was going on. Sounds pretty good at first, right? Right. So, so because these kids can leave campus, like it, it just lets like a teacher or a security person quickly glance and say, oh, they're good to go. That's right. Okay. So, Lissa, are you with me so far? Yes. All right. She's, she's looking skeptical, though. So <laughs> I, There is some skepticism here. And <laughs> I, I can definitely see the side of the parent. So apparently, there was a student who was a few credits short of their, their class. They had not earned, she had not earned the, uh, the 12 credits to keep her in the 11th grade. And now she has a red badge. And all of her friends basically are wondering why you had this red badge, right? And um, any upperclassman who is missing any, any credit whatsoever are immediately slapped with this red card, right? Rather than so, the gray. Got it. Okay. That's right. So that they don't progress and therefore they are they have this red badge. And so it's very easy for their peers who they've had since kindergarten to tell that they are missing something and they're not doing very well in school. And so this this parent obviously is up in arms about this and has has asked the ACLU to get involved. And the ACLU said that this violates FERPA um, because it keeps students kind of educational progress private. The school district has said FERPA allows us, and this is true, FERPA allows us to have a directory information such as name, address, telephone listing, date and place of birth, participation in officially recognized activities of sports, and dates of attendance unless otherwise stated by the family. And so the school district is saying FERPA allows us to tell people what grade you're in unless you specifically opt out of it. And the parent is saying, well, look, this isn't telling them what necessarily tell them what grade it's in. It's telling them that my student is missing some credits or is behind in some way. And I've got to be honest with you. I think the school district doesn't have a leg to stand on here because FERPA also says that you cannot release individually identifying information about a student and their academic situation without parental consent and um, a, a personally identifying personally identifying information is generally identified as anything that a reasonable person in the community would be able to tell about that student um, uh, with just knowledge with community knowledge and for instance they would know that this student is supposed to be in the 11th grade, but it's actually in the 10th grade. It had to have failed some classes. So de facto, I think they are violating FERPA because they are, you know, the student is supposed to be in the 11th grade and they're actually in the 10th grade. And they have this badge that shows it. So um, I wanted to open it up and see what you guys thought about this. Okay, I have a question. So 
if let's say they, you know, are behind on a, a unit, you know, um, because mm-hmm. they, you know, I know like, for example, my son is in a block schedule school. So they, you know, when, when they have a sports, like the, if they play football or play soccer, well, that is a class. And yep. so that means you, you have to work a little harder to make sure if you're going to be involved in two sports that also have a block each, you got to work a little harder to get your other credits to make sure yep. that you're meeting all because you're definitely meeting the physical education credits there, but you need to meet the others. So um, my question is, are these children that are missing a credit, whether it be they failed or they're going to do a credit recovery program or or they're just involved in too many extracurricular activities that have a blocked time, will they still graduate? Can they still graduate by the time they're at the end of their 12th grade year if they do things like take a summer online course or do a credit recovery program? They still could, in fact, graduate with that class that they've been in school with since kindergarten, right? I would think that they probably could recover their credit in some way, yes. Right. So that's why I have a problem with the fact that they changed their color on their badge. I have a problem with that because if the whole point of the color changing is that we can keep track with who does this or that or that we just know as a student body, well, if that child is, you're basically giving them a badge saying they, they failed a class, you know, yeah. but they're still in that student body, probably in the yearbook, they're still going to be listed in the yearbook under that, uh, unless that they're going to move them to the class behind, which I think mm-hmm. they won't. So yeah, I think this is a problem. I'm not going to give you my opinion on it. I, I'm pretty much in line with you guys, um, but I will predict that the school district folds very quickly. It's well, not the school district. The go- school district has taken the weasel way out, which, in my opinion, the school district agreed to remove the number 11 from Pickett's badge. And if Pickett's mother decides to opt out of disclosing direct information, the teen will receive a badge that does not indicate her grade or color which I think is just BS. Yeah, I, like, I agree. It's so dumb. I feel like there's a better solution somewhere in the middle, and this is I them. think that the district is pouting. Yeah, that's what I think the district is doing. Uh, the I district think they got called. Tired I think of... this is bad policy, and they got called on it, and now they're pouting. They tried to hide behind FERPA, and basically these guys said, well, the you, you can't disclose anything. Like, this supersedes your directory information, right? Like, you are de facto telling them that... And the student has missed classes due to severe anemia. Um, and that's, he has to go to doctor's visits in Phoenix. Yeah, and that's why supposedly she missed his credit oh, anyway. So goodness. I just think the district, this is just another example of a district having bad policy that whenever they're called on it, instead of just fixing it and saying, yeah, yeah, we'll just give her the 11th grade badge and hell, she doesn't graduate on time, she doesn't graduate on time, right? That's that's on her. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's, that time, they just did this there's times when a district should fight the ACLU. And the ACLU has tons of resources. They've been to the Supreme Court, I think, more than any other organization. So they're going to be tough to beat. But at the same time, there's times when they should fight them. But I just don't feel like this is one of them. It's just not... I feel like when the When the ACLU comes knocking on your door, generally they win, right? And generally you've done something wrong. It's like the school districts that continually like fight the school prayer thing. Like I can't tell you how many times school districts go to court in southern states every year um, over trying to figure out a way to finagle around the student prayer law. Like right. they, they, they get, they get their teeth kicked in in court every single well, time. Well, usually they adjust and then in a couple of years they go back to what they were doing. And that, that's right. Yeah. And, and so like, I just think it's an example of like, I think if you, if, and in those cases, 
Now, it's never been, I don't think it's been done before, but in some states, you can actually, if you willingly defy a law using public dollars, you can be asked to pay for the defense of it. Like if you make mm-hmm. the decision that you know is in defiance of federal law or state law, then um, you can be personally asked to be liable for that. But in this case, I don't see that happening, but I just think it's dumb. I just think that the school district is picking on someone and they don't want to go back on a policy. Let me tell you what probably really happened. I just want to make a prediction here that the the school decided to give incentives to try to help um, children stay in school and not just drop out in that, you know, precious 11th, 12th grade year. So they gave incentives of you can do this, you can have a free lunch, you can do, you know, you can you can roam about, you can whatever. And they did all these cool things to try to help keep kids coming through the doors. And there are probably children that are abusing that, that are doing as little as they can to get by. And the school finally was like, you know what, we're going to come up with, although it be a bad idea, we're going to come up with a way to say, no, you don't get those privileges. You don't just get to come and go freely because you're technically not uh, doing your part of the deal. And now this young lady has been caught in the crossfires of it because she has a medical reason. And the mother, of course, has a problem with it, and she should. But really, I bet this whole stupid color badge thing was because they had children that weren't doing their part, and they were trying to meet in the middle and say, you know, we're going to allow some more freedom, you know, because you guys are older, and you can drive, and you do have jobs, and, and it's, you know, it's just... It's a bad idea, but I bet that's what this all started with. Right. Yeah. Well, well, I think it's a road to hell, right? I think yeah. a road to hell is paying <laughs> good intentions. Right. Well, I've got one, and we're, we're a little short on time, and it's not going to require a debate or anything. It's pretty simple. Um, but I just wanted to bring it up because, you know, I try to be environmentally conscious. And um, I saw out of Madison, Wisconsin, um, there's this program, this Got Water program, and they've provided these um, water refilling stations at a bunch of the schools in Madison. And you, do you know what I mean when I say like a water refilling station? Mm-hmm. Uh, like I'll describe it if somebody hasn't actually seen one of these, but they're in national parks. They're in airports a lot. Like it's not a water fountain. It's basically like this really fast pouring water dispenser. You just stick your plastic bottle underneath it and it fills up a bottle in like what? Five seconds. Yeah. And it has a light that kills bacteria. Right. And mm-hmm. that's really what I think is great. Cause like a water fountain, like mm-hmm. if, if you hadn't really thought about it, mm-hmm. if it's never crossed your mind, it has mine and probably a lot of other people's. They're pretty gross, especially where kids are. Cause adults, we know we're supposed to keep our mouth away from the spigot. But if you ever watch like a three or four year old work <laughs> a water fountain, yeah, right. like they're like mouths all over it. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Many and, science fair projects have been done on uh, water fountains. And they and should be. <laughs> so anyhow, I just started thinking like, why, like, can we get, can we get these water refilling stations everywhere? Like this just makes sense. Cause it, it you know, one, it's good for the environment, it promotes kids to use, bring their own bottle. You're not just bringing little plastic water bottles. It's good for health reasons. You reduce the sugar and the Gatorades and stuff like that. And it's good for health reasons. I don't know. Just makes like in terms of the bacteria so what do you guys think yeah i like it i mean let's do it right yeah everybody should do it everybody should do it there's there's no (laughs) No, excuses no excuses all right well are you guys ready for the uh, bright idea our guest in today's bright idea segment is an english teacher in nashville tennessee and he's also responsible for the nationwide movement that's working to put a stop to book deserts Jared Amato is the co-founder of Project Lit, an initiative that began as a class project, but has since grown into something much larger than that. Jared, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you because what you did is really everything that our show is about. We always are looking for people who have original ideas 
And then they have an idea that action can be scalable or duplicated in different parts of the country. And it sounds like that's exactly what you did. So first, give our listeners a short summary of, of what you guys do with Project Lit. Yeah, um, we started it uh, in our classroom here at Maplewood High School, um, initially with a group of about 35 students who were already invested in, in the power of reading. And I was looping with that group of students um, as they headed into their sophomore year and introduced them to an article that I had read over the summer about book deserts and the importance of book access and what it's like for a child to grow up without books. And read that article with our students, asked them a bunch of questions, um, why this, this problem was important, what they wanted to do to solve it. And from that moment, Project Little Community was born. And for the past two and a half years, we've been working together to not only eliminate book deserts here in Nashville, um, but really to promote a love of reading uh, across the country. So, so this was back in, in 2016, I guess. And, and you're, an yeah. English, you're an English teacher. What, what grade do you currently teach? So um, I taught middle school English for six years and moved up to the high school in the same cluster, uh, primarily freshmen. Um, but that group's been a really special group. So I've taught that group um, as freshmen, sophomores, juniors, uh, and now as seniors. And so that group is, is getting ready to graduate and go off to college and, and change the world. And uh, I'm teaching freshmen as well. So when you came across this article, and, and I think it was out of the, the Atlantic about book deserts, did you even really know that, that this was a thing, that, that there, were, there were communities around the country where essentially kids, children, don't have access to books? And that means no library, no bookstore, really nothing. Uh, I, didn't, I don't think I understood the, um, the scope of the problem. I don't think... Uh, I'd never heard of it in that way. And so I think we, we study food deserts and talk about food deserts. Um, but the term, the term itself was really um, was eye-opening. And my brain, you know, the summer you're at the, you're at the pool, or you're at the beach, or you're just thinking and relaxing. And um, I think you can talk to my wife. Like, I, I just said, this is really this is something that, that's important to, to talk about. But I, I'm, I'd be lying if I said that in that moment um, – we'd be where we are today talking about it. Well, and that, um, that's just what's so amazing is you must have, so you, you learn about this, you turn to your class as you kind of alluded to, and you said, you know, what can we do about this? You know, what was that initial conversation like back man, in 2016? So, yeah, so like we, we started talking about, you know, we're here at Maplewood High School and you were like, let's think about what's around us. And so we, we actually drove um, down Dickerson Road and took note of, the gas stations and the liquor stores and the fast food, right? So there are no healthy options to eat, uh, tire shops, and there's actually an adult toy box uh, literally right next to the bus stop where kids get ready for school um, across the street from an, an elementary school. And there are no bookstores. Like, there are no books. And, and um, the reality that our high school students recognize was that it's intentional, right? That it, it's not by accident that, their community and our community is not um, is not full of is not full of books, um, and so that moment I think students recognized because they were already readers themselves. I think they they already had bought into the power of reading and, and of books, and so um, we just I think we're just really excited to do something. And I, I think what's been beautiful is that it's been a little bit at a time, and just one thing 
one conversation, one step at a time. And so let's start with that first step. What was your first reaction as a group when you said, okay, we're going to do something about this? I assume you tackled it in a local neighborhood or community, yeah. right? Yeah. And so we, we drafted a, a mission and vision and designed a logo. And the first step was a book drive. And we launched a book drive. And you could find the video on YouTube. It's really cool to see. The mission for Project Lit Community is to decrease the book deserts and increase the enthusiasm for reading. Book deserts are places that have limited access to books. I can tell when I'm in a book desert because if you ride down the street, all you see is alcohol stores and gas stations, but you don't really see a bookstore. You just see something common. Um, that first ask, which was, drop off books at Maplewood High School, used or new from seven to two. And that was it. And we literally just would spend our lunch periods opening boxes, counting, sorting. We created the uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram account um, and really just asked our national community to, to drop off books. And um, we kept track. We had a, uh, Lauren, I can still picture her like writing, you know, keeping track on the board every, every day, adding up the books. And I think we set a goal of 5,000. We hit that and it became 10,000, and uh, eventually our, our classroom, you know, was was literally overflowing with books. So, so, all right, so you end up with all these books, and you also now have this pile of responsibility. Like, people are expecting you to deliver, deliver these somewhere, get these to where they're accessible. So, where do you go with them? Yeah, right. So, we then take the books, and we, because of what we're sharing and talking and writing letters and making videos, um, somebody says, hey... The USA Today has all these newsstands that are no longer being used. Um, everything is moving online. So we have all these newsstands, and we had this idea to turn those newsstands into what we call lit libraries. And we took those libraries. We spent a couple Saturdays painting them, uh, putting our logo on them, and then working to identify locations in East Nashville to not only deliver to the library, but then to fill those libraries with, uh, with our donated books. And, and I'm assuming that was a success. Like you, that was kind of the model for, for before you expanded. Yeah, so, so we, it's part of the story. And I think a lot of times people don't know that the lit in our name is libraries in the community uh, is, is the acronym there. Um, and of course there's multiple plays on, on the word lit, but it actually was really hard uh, for a few reasons. One, we have a little Honda, I'm, I'm in a Honda civic. So delivering the, the actual newsstands was difficult. Um, secondly, the books that we were placing in those libraries, like most of them actually kind of sucked. Right. So I, I, they were just we, kind of older used books that maybe weren't yeah, the best stories. Right? Or... So we, so we realized that we still have a really, a, a vision to flood all communities with great books. Um, but we realized that what we could do as high school students and a teacher, uh, was focus more on our classroom and focus on the quality of the books in our classroom and focus, yes, on increasing access, but really about access to, to great books. And so we actually kind of switched our focus um, going into the next semester of that school year. At some point, and I want to get back on track with the story, but at some point you're driving yeah. around your, your Honda Civic with all these books, but, you, <laughs> but, but you're also trying to teach school. You're, and, and as we all know, uh, teaching's hard. It takes a lot of time. Uh, at some point where you're like, what am I doing? What did I get myself into? Uh, and I was planning a wedding and uh, I was in, uh, in grad school finishing, you know, working on my dissertation. This is all happening at the same time. Wow. Um, but it was so much fun, man. Like it was, I mean, for, for our students, 
and they were sophomores. They weren't as busy, but still were uh, dedicating hours after school um, together, and it was fun. And I think um, looking back at that, the, the early days of, of the movement, it, it's something that we'll never forget, and uh, we just learned a lot, right? But we learned that uh, there were people out there in the community who wanted to help, who wanted to uh, to get involved, and we also learned, like, what we – as young people and a teacher can do. And then we also learn, you know, like, Hey, there's that maybe not be sustainable to try to do, especially because we learned that there's this really bad scene of one of the, the YMCA's or the community centers had put a chain around the books and the oh, library wow. like it. And so we just learned lessons that it's really hard and you need people. Um, we just learned a lot of lessons early on, and it was really fun, and, and yes, really exhausting too. So, so what is the workable model now, and like what works for y'all in in the Nashville area? Yeah, so I mean, what what you found is that it's really about empowering our students to lead the way and become the leading the the reading role models in our community. And so, our students uh, read a ton, obviously, but then they're they're hosting book clubs every month. They're gaining confidence as public speakers. They're running our social media accounts. They're giving speeches. They're planning uh, conferences, and we're doing workshops together and developing, curric- developing curriculum and delivering books to elementary school kids and reading to elementary school students and connecting with other kids and authors and really just saying, like, if as a teacher, if I can make sure that we have great books to read and discuss in class and then I get out of the way and really spend my energy – empowering them then shoot it's going to be awesome in every community in every school and all of our chapters look a little bit different but the the thing you'll see in common is a love of books and a real belief in our students and so that's been that's been i mean you can do that anywhere in any in any part of the country and uh it's been really fun to connect with other schools and other chapters who believe in the same kind of stuff. And so how did that whole, the, the whole theory of chapters come about? I mean, did somebody call you? Did somebody hear about what you're doing? Or did you guys just kind of get the word out and then it just grew? No, it's a good question. So I think a couple things happened around the same time. Uh, our students expressed a desire to grow Project Lit nationally. And they actually, if you look back at the early documents, they talked about uh, a nationwide and actually like an international movement. And so that was a goal that they had. Um, at the same time, because we were sharing everything on social media, I had teachers and friends reach out and say, hey, what are you guys doing? What can we learn? But they, we didn't know um, exactly what that would look like until the spring of that first year, so spring of 2017. Um, we created a Project Lit Chapter Leader application, uh, a Google form, a quick Google form application that's still pinned to our Twitter profile, and that's where teachers can go to sign up to become a part of our movement. And so you mentioned Twitter. Let's go ahead and drop the handle there. Do you know that offhand for Twitter? Yeah, it's Project Lit COMM. So Project Lit Community, but uh, COMM at the end. So how how big have you guys grown now? How many chapters are there? How many states are you in? Yeah, so the cool thing is um, when I first put that application up, I spent a bunch of time um, creating the application, developing questions that we thought would um, make sure that people understood what they were signing up for and that they put some thought into, but not not too too complicated. Um, and those first applications came in that summer with teachers who, who were taking a chance and a leap of faith uh, to, to join this community. And um, I guess we're looking at um, a little over a year, um, a year and a half. We have about 
20 project book chapters. Wow. Across about, we're missing, so if there's people listening in uh, New Hampshire, okay. Alaska, 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 New Hampshire, and uh, one of the Dakotas. It was either North, uh, North or South Dakota. <laughs> there's somebody, we've got at least one or two educators in, uh, in, all, in all, almost all states, and uh, in a bunch of states, we've got a real, a real solid, awesome team of educators, and so we're, we're figuring it out together what it can look like to connect and to collaborate and to share resources, um, but really just um, believing in the same things, supporting and uplifting one another, and, uh, and growing together. So that part has been, has been awesome. There's so many ideas. We do Twitter chats all the time. And it's constantly just learning uh, from each other. What hashtag do you guys normally use when you do a Twitter chat? Is it Project Lit? Yeah, Project, yeah, Project Lit Chat. Got it. And what day of the week do you, is that normally consistent? Uh, or is it... Sunday nights, every other Sunday. Okay, good to know. Folks will hopefully keep an yeah. eye out for that. Yeah, thanks. And we do, we do slow chats throughout the week. And so that, we tell people, follow the hashtag Project Lit Chat and hashtag Project Lit Book Club. And there's, I mean, that's the beautiful thing, too. There are days that are really hard for me as an educator. Uh, I'm in a district where there's a lot of stress on teachers, and we're actually the nearby middle school. Um, I was there for a PD the other day, and their library is closed. It doesn't even it, the the library is there, the books are there, but there's no librarian, and kids are not allowed to access the library. Wow. Uh, here in our own city, and so there are days that are really hard, and to go on on social media, especially Twitter, and see all the the amazing things that people are sharing has made it um, has made a huge difference for me just as an educator myself. Well, I know the growth of, of Project Lit has to be rewarding, but at the same time, did you ever hear of an experience from that resulted from Project Lit that made you say, this is why we're doing this and this is so worth it? The best part of teaching seniors is to, like, to, to either get a text message or to, to have a student come in in the morning with a college acceptance letter. And uh, that's been happening a lot. And so to see our students here in Nashville who have grown uh, tremendously you know, over the past three years, those moments are, are really special. I'm trying to savor all of those before um, they go off and do amazing things. And then nationally, it's like, it, to me, the, the stories of kids who have never seen themselves in a book until now, until They've been given uh, an amazing book like Dear Martin or The Hate You Give or Long Way Down by one of their great teachers, and, and to see their smile and to, to see, um, like to see that if, even just through pictures, right? Because we're not all together, but just to see that, to know that it's happening every day in classrooms and communities across the country, um, is just really, really, really special. When you say see themselves in a book, you mean a character that they can relate to. Yeah, and, and it's it's not complicated. There are a lot of things, I think, that are really complicated, but what we're finding um, is let's do the simple stuff first. Like Let's just make sure that all of our kids in middle school and high school and, and elementary school like have opportunities to read great books, especially books that um, they can see themselves in and that they can connect to and that affirm and value their experiences and their identity and their culture. And let's just give them the space and the time to do that and then – on top of that, to talk about it and to compete in trivia. We do trivia at the end of every book club and to connect with kids and the authors themselves and just make it fun. I feel like it's not complicated. And so to know that people out there are doing it and um, 
making it happen is just really cool. So uh, you mentioned the form that people can sign up through on Twitter. Is there a website people should go to as well, or is, is that really the best way to do it? Go to that form. Yeah, right now we're we're holding off on the website. Um, actually, to 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 slow the growth in a way, like we really want to focus on the people that are finding it the right way uh, through social media right now, and and let's we're learning together and um, getting ready to kind of just figure out what it's going to continue to look like moving forward, what people need, what support they need. Um, my role, um, what that will look like moving forward and, and just figuring things out. And so, um, the Twitter is the best Twitter and, and our Instagram, uh, are the best spots. All right, Jared. Well, we appreciate all the, uh, inspirational work. Hopefully somebody listening in, in, uh, New Hampshire or Alaska or one of the Dakotas is going to hear this and, and want to take the ball and run <laughs> with it. Yeah. And if you're in another state, just reach out to us, uh, projectlycommunity at gmail.com. And we'll connect you with educators in your state who are already doing the work and, and leading book clubs. And you can visit them and check in with them. And uh, we'll have our, our second Project Lit Summit here in Nashville in June, which is a really great time for all of us to come together face-to-face and connect. And we're, we're planning some cool stuff for that. And then over time to try to plan even more regional events for for people all over the country. Well, and, and Nashville is a great city for those that don't know. And it just would be fun to make the trip no matter what, because there's just so much to do there. It's yeah. really cool. There may, yeah. We're, we're may or may not be like, you know, some karaoke downtown, uh, <laughs> plan for one of the nights, but really authors will be in there and we're going to try to make it fun too. I, I think we, we've got some cool ideas. I would be afraid to sing in Nashville because the city it was like eight and 10 people are great singers in Nashville. So you, <laughs> you got to bring it if you're going to bring it. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna record and sit in the back because I will not be. I will not be getting up there. All right. Uh, uh, are you ready for the uh, pop quiz, Jared? Yeah, let's do it. All right. First question: If students could go to school for just one subject, which subject should it be? P. No, I'm kidding. I love sports. Uh, English. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Empathy. What does every child deserve? Access to great books. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Man, overtesting, under undercompensated. What's the best gift to give an educator? Books, coffee, and love. Which teacher changed your life? Miss Madsen, my third grade teacher. Help me write my first book. And last question, pen or pencil? Ah, pen. All right. My pencil, sharp, my pencil sharpener is a pain to work. All right. Thanks again so much, Jared Amato. Uh, one more time, give us that Twitter handle again, just in case if someone missed it the first time around. Yeah. Uh, personal handle is Jared Amato, and the Project Lit handle is Project Lit C-O-M-M. And the, uh, the chat again was Project Lit Chat, right? Yeah, exactly. That's a hashtag. All right. Well, thanks again. We appreciate your time and good luck with Project Lit. Hey, thank you so much for having me. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you, so if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button, and we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter 
to search for us by typing in class dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.